0: Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. Also, good morning to those of you who are worshiping with us online. We're so grateful that we're together. So, this sermon is a part of a continuing sermon series entitled Easter Tide. Easter Tide. And Easter Tide is very familiar for those of us who maybe grew up in the high church. Easter tide is the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus for seven Sundays following Easter. There's actually a 50-day span between Easter and the resurrection and then Pentecost, Penta, 50. Pentecost is 50 days after the resurrection. And so I felt led that we were to move through Scripture and to discover together what Jesus does in resurrected body after the resurrection, before his ascension, which, by the way, was 40 days after that, and then what happens with Pentecost Sunday. So, for those of you who don't know, it's 28 days until Pentecost Sunday. Now, I have a question. How many of you are looking forward to something? You can think of it right now. Raise your hand. Looking forward to something. I have a question. How many of you know how many days until that takes place? Right off the top of your head. A few people raise their hands. How many of you have no clue whatsoever? You just know it's gonna be there. Well, When we think about something that we're looking forward to, I was in preparation for this sermon, I was listening and in conversations with people about what they're looking forward to. I wanna give you some examples. First of all, one young person was talking about a summer vacation. How many of you are looking forward to summer vacation? Another kid was talking about summer camp. Another young man this week I was in a conversation with is getting his driver's license. He's excited about that, and I'm glad he lives on the other side of the mountain. Um, uh, Another person actually was here this morning, um, just got a brand new job, and they're excited about a new job. And then uh, another individual that I was talking to was over the moon excited because this week they're going to sit down with a friend that they have not seen since COVID started. And they're going to sit down, and they're going to spend time together, and they're going to catch up in person through life. The other thing that I really did notice though is that when we talk about a future event that we're excited about, it's usually around one of two things, something that's finishing or something that's going to start. So what I noticed was there's been a lot of conversation about graduation. Students are excited about graduation. I actually have a daughter who's grad, she's excited about graduating from undergrad, but she's really excited about grad school. Excited about the completion of something and excited about what's next. That's usually what creates something that we are looking forward to. And by the way, for those of you who don't know, it is 251 days till Christmas, just so you know. Now, one of the things in our culture that people get really excited about are weddings. I recently learned from a bride where I officiated a wedding that there are websites now that do almost everything for you. It will guide you day by day, step by step and where you need to be at as you're planning for your wedding. Not only that, there's an app that she had that has a countdown to the day of her wedding, days, hours, and minutes. And if you look at the list, and by the way, I did a, performed a wedding last night. So last night I was there with just a small group of people, and the wedding was awesome. We had so much fun. There were about twenty people involved with this wedding. Beautiful setting. But one of the things that I've noticed is is that nowadays, oftentimes, brides will send out, or the couple will send out something that's called save the date, and then later you get an invitation. That never happened when my wife and I got married 30 years ago. Now it's save the date. That warns you the invitation's coming. So you save the date and then the invitation comes and you hope the same date is on the invitation and the save the date, and also this, the save the date will tell you something about the wedding. It'll be at the beach, or everyone's gonna wear a tie-dye shirt, or it's gonna be small, or it's gonna be out on a farm. They'll tell you a little bit on the save the date, and then the actual invitation shows up. But the wedding that I did yesterday, or performed yesterday, obviously had certain things. It involved the bride and the groom, right? And then it was, there was a date on the calendar that they had picked There was a photographer, there were flowers, there was a venue, there was a dress that was picked, the family was there, but the most important thing that they did in that entire planning was to choose which pastor would marry them. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. The big events of our life are the things that we prepare for, and we talk about, and we send out a save the date. Jesus did that with his death, death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus had sent out several save the dates. He had sent out several messages ahead of time in all four gospels to let his disciples know exactly what was coming. And why wouldn't he have? Because the resurrection of Jesus and the time, those 50 days between the resurrection and Pentecost are the most important days of Jesus' life. We need to know this. Without the resurrection, there would have been no Christianity. Without the resurrection, you would have never heard of Christmas. The resurrection is everything. And what fascinates me, though, is when Jesus is looking forward to his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he does so with excitement and some trepidation. But in the end, when he frames it, he says that that entire event will bring glory to himself and glory to the Father. Now, I want us to look very quickly at two save-the-date messages that Jesus brings in the Gospel of John before we read the primary scripture from John chapter 20. In John chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit... Jesus speaking about the day of his resurrection and his death and his burial, he says this, all I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He said that right after he told them he was going to Jerusalem to die. Notice there that Jesus promises the Holy Spirit and he promises peace. And the next time he brings up his death, he speaks again. It's kind of a save the date notice. There's data he wants his disciples to know. And that's found in John 16, verses 20 through 23. Listen to what Jesus says about what his disciples will experience. Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. I wanted to say something very quickly, pastorally, before we read John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. And it's this, there is a version of Christianity today that teaches that if you have enough faith, you will never grieve and you will never suffer. It teaches that if you have enough faith, your life will be continually blessed. You're never gonna face anything. I want to encourage you that if you hear someone teaching that, be polite, wait till they're over, but walk and don't come back. I've run into too many believers over the past several years who believe that to be true and when they hit grief and they hit sorrow and they hit the unthinkable things that we would never sign up with, that means all of a sudden they don't have enough faith and God has extracted his goodness from their lives. That's false. One of the things that the death, burial, and resurrection teaches us is that suffering and grief are part of our lives but in Christ, in Christ, the suffering and the grief can take on a whole new meaning for us that it's not there just in and of itself but because of who god is and what jesus went through we can have this confidence that the sorrow and the grief and the tough times of my life somehow some way through the resurrection of jesus takes on a whole new reality for me notice what jesus says you will grieve that's what he tells his disciples But because of Christ, that grief will turn to joy. The reality of it is God does do miracles. I've seen them. But the greatest miracle I've ever seen is when God through Christ walks with someone through the valley of the shadow of death and they come out the other side and they're strong and Christ has maintained them. They've grieved, they've suffered, They've had incredible sorrow. But something about the presence of Jesus alters that entire experience. That's the greatest miracle I've ever seen. Now let's move on to read our primary text for this morning. It's John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Jesus appears to his disciples. For the past couple of weeks, we've looked at other gospels where Jesus appeared to his disciples. And this week, we're going to take a look at the evening of the resurrection. In the morning, he appears to Mary Magdalene and some other women at the tomb. Now it's the same evening, the evening of his resurrection, and he appears to his disciples. Let's read the text together. And if you don't mind, please read it out loud with me. Are we ready? All right, let's read it out loud. On the evening of the first day of the week, When the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, I want us to notice what just happened in two quick paragraphs. What we discover is it's the evening of the day of resurrection. So Jesus' disciples have watched him die. He's been tortured to death. They've observed that. This is the third day after that. It's in the evening. The women have told them he's raised from the dead. But the text tells us that they felt like what the women were saying was unbelievable. It just, they couldn't grasp it. Now the disciples, those 11 followers of Jesus, are in a room, and the scripture says the door is locked. Why? Because they believe that the same Jewish leaders that took out Jesus are gonna come for them, and they're gonna lose their lives. So they've huddled together, they're in a room, they've locked the door, and they're filled with fear. And the scripture says Jesus steps into that room, literally appears in the room, and he says, hey, look, guys, my hands. And he lifts up his shirt and says, look at my side. And the text says, they are overjoyed. They're thrilled. Their sorrow instantly has turned to joy. Now, I don't know if you are like I am, but at times when I read the scriptures... I look at things, and I think, that seems odd. So can you imagine you're in a room, you're scared to death, and the doors are locked, and first of all, Jesus just, boom, appears. He doesn't come through the door. He doesn't lift up the window and crawl in. You're there. The doors are locked. You're hunkered down, and all of a sudden, boom, he's there. What the scripture is trying to teach us is there's something about the resurrected body that is different than the natural body. But notice that Jesus still has his scars. He still has the wounds. That fascinates me. I would think that the resurrection body would be totally healed and all evidence of pain and suffering and sorrow and the bad stuff you wouldn't sign up for would be gone, wouldn't you? but it isn't. When Jesus is resurrected, his body still bears the wounds and the sufferings of life. Now, obviously, somehow they're healed and they're made better, but the evidence is there. What does Jesus do? He steps into the room and he says, look at this, it's me. And then he shows his hands, it's me. Now, why does he do that? A lot of debates why Jesus does this, but one of them I'm convinced of, and it's this. He being there is the final sign that's found in the Gospel of John. There are seven signs that predate the resurrection of Jesus. Each one of them is a miracle. Things like walking on the water, the feeding of the 5,000. The seventh sign is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. These miraculous interventions of God that pointed to Jesus as being unique and something God is doing in the world. I believe this is the last one. It's where Jesus physically presents himself and he physically becomes a sign of what God is doing in the world. The disciples look at him, they're overjoyed. But let's be honest, If that's the sign, don't you think there ought to be more people in the room? Now, I've mentioned this throughout Easter. I think God and the way God markets God's self needs some help. I think on the resurrection, the angels at his birth should have gotten all their buddies and showed up at the resurrection and given a huge light display and just cheered, lightning would have been pretty cool. Maybe some smoke, some lighting. There's none of it. Jesus is resurrected, appears to some women, takes most of the day off, and then appears in the evening. And he's in a room with a bunch of disciples that are scared to death. And there's 11 of them. I think he just needs help with his marketing. Right? Now... I want to give the following illustration because I think it illustrates why I'm wrong and God's right. Now, I mentioned that uh, in my sermon a few weeks ago that I traveled to St. Louis, Missouri with the UVA wrestling team. I'm the ad hoc chaplain. It's nothing official. A lot of the wrestlers worship here along with the coaches, and so I go to the national tournament. So I was there in St. Louis, and uh, last week I showed the worshiping Pinocchio that I had Discovered in St. Louis. And this other illustration comes from that trip. About half a block from worshiping Pinocchio is a donut shop called Pharaoh's Donuts. And when I was there in the hotel, I went to the concierge and I said, Hey, listen, I need a little food. I'm going to get a meeting. And uh, she said, You have to go to Pharaoh's Donuts. First of all, I'm thinking to myself, What an odd name. I don't think Pharaoh ate donuts. But somehow, Pharaoh's Donuts, she was all excited. I said, okay. So I said, well, I'm going to go to Pharaoh's Donuts. So I put it in my, my little uh, map, and I walked a few blocks. And when I got to Pharaoh's Donuts, I was really surprised by something. It was this. Their marketing is terrible. So here's the sign that's outside of Pharaoh's Donuts. Seriously, that's the sign on the sidewalk. It's, you can barely read it. It's all weathered. Uh, That thing's gotta be 30 years old. And then not only that, here's the next sign that's in the window of Pharaoh's donuts. Now, do do you understand what's happening here? The sign is angled the wrong way. It needs to go the other way. Am I right? Is everyone right? Okay, so here's the deal. I got there at noon and they were basically sold out of every donut. I love those Boston cream donuts, the ones with the chocolate that are injected with some kind of vanilla. I think Jesus would eat them, so I eat them too. <laughs> but I went to the guy, and I met him. His name was Rodney. I said, Rodney, do you have any Boston creams? He goes, no, nah, they've been sold out for hours, man. If you're gonna get those, you gotta be here by like 9.30 in the morning. I went, note to self, I will be here at 9.30 tomorrow morning. And here's the thing. Did you see the signage? It's terrible. But you know they sell out of their donuts every single day. You don't waste money on signage if your product is that good. You don't need signage. Jesus could appear to 11 and he knew that would transform the world. All it would take would be 11 to meet him in resurrected body and know that he's there and look at the wounds and identify him appropriately And then, if it's true, if he's really resurrected from the dead, you will never, ever stop him. There's no way to stop him. It's like the donuts with no signage. If it's that good, you don't have to advertise, it gets a life of its own. And what we have now is Jesus stands there with his disciples, he shows them his wounds. And then the text says, he breathes on them. Now, I don't know how you picture things, but I look at that and go, that's weird. Let's just be honest. Jesus has these disciples huddled down in a room, and what does the scripture say? He what? He breathed on them. Come on now, that's odd. Am I the only one that thinks that's weird? He breathed on Jesus, do anything but breathe on people. And he does, he breathes on them. And what you discover, though, is it says he breathed on them, and then he said, receive the Spirit. Now, what's fascinating, though, and it's obvious the gospel writer would want you to know this that the word breathe is rare in Scripture. This word for breathe only appears three times. The first time, it's when God fashions Adam and breathes into Adam. The second time is in Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 9, where there's a valley of dry bones. The prophet Ezekiel is brought to a valley that's filled with thousands of dead bones that are bleached in the sun. And the prophet is told by God to prophesy over the dry bones. And the prophet does. And it says that sinew and flesh comes onto the bones. And suddenly there are all these bodies. But there's no life. And then God says to the prophet again in Ezekiel 37, I want you to prophesy that God would breathe on them. And so the prophet prophesies that God would breathe. And when he prophesies that, all of these bodies suddenly come to life. Life enters them. The Spirit of God enters them. And the end of Ezekiel 37 says this, and I will open your graves and I will bring new life. And when you see that, you will know I'm God. And so here the text tells us that Jesus, in this room with people filled with fear, it says he breathes, but it's the same word from Ezekiel, where dead people filled with the fear of death suddenly get life. How do we put feet to our faith with what we've just read? First of all, notice that Jesus says two times, and in his save the date told them that his peace would be with you. Peace be with you. But here's what I know. A lot of Christians don't have peace. And yet he said it's available. Do we have peace? It makes us different than those that don't know Jesus. Because he says, my peace I give you. I'd like to stop and pray. Pray with me. Jesus, we need your peace. Jesus, fill us with your peace. Jesus, your peace is a peace that the world does not give, nor can the world take it away. Fill us with your peace. In Christ's name, amen. The next thing Jesus said to his disciples is, I am sending you. In other words, are we open to God using us to share the good news of Christ? Are we open to meeting at Starbucks with a friend and talking to them about resurrection? Jesus told his disciples, I'm sending you. By the way, it doesn't look like Jesus chose very well. They were 11 and they were scared to death in a locked room. Doesn't sound like a great start. And yet, we sit here today, 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about this event. The third thing Jesus said was receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit, and then he breathed on them. Now, let's be honest God calls us to be open to his spirit. Are we open to the Holy Spirit? I often think about being to open to the Holy Spirit with what I've seen at UVA baseball games. Let me explain. I've watched at almost every UVA baseball game where some little kid sits in the outfield with his glove on, waiting for the ball to come over the back wall, waiting, ready in anticipation. Are we like that with the Spirit of God? or is our openness more lackadaisical? I'd like to pray again. Pray with me. God, help us to be women and men who are open to your spirit. Jesus, in this moment, I pray that we would be open to the fullness of your spirit's work in this world. Fill us, breathe on us in this moment because we desperately desperately need you and i pray for this and i believe for this in jesus name in jesus name amen and amen